Hello and welcome to Nerd Geek Dork, the podcast where we explore the nerdy, geeky, and dorky side of pop culture. I'm Al Adam and with me as always is Pete the Retailer. Hello. Hello to you, Pete. And today we're going to be talking about Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Sorry, Stan Lee Martin Lieber, better known to us as Stan Lee, uh, is former president, chairman, editor-in-chief, uh, pretty much everything Marvel. He's just Mr. Marvel. He was born in 1922, so he's 90 years old. He's still at it. He's still kind of, uh, you know, basically a figurehead at Marvel. And Jack Kirby, born Jacob Kurtzberg, 1917. He died in 1994, but his, uh, he was one of the most influential creators uh, in, in comics history. And between the two of them, they formed a successful partnership, starting with uh, Fantastic Four number one, which came out in 1961. They just basically not only saved Marvel from bankruptcy, but revolutionized the entire comics industry. And, and their legacy is still felt... To this day, everything that happens in comics is pretty much a direct result of stuff that they did in the 60s. They are well deserving of their self-imposed nicknames, Stan the Man and Jack the King. Yeah. And joining us to talk about these two legends are our Nerd Geek Dork regulars by this point, wouldn't you say, Pete? Yeah, they're kind of our, yeah. our like our legends. Exactly. Our buddies, uh, Joe and Song. Yeah, it's Joe M. Crazy Joe, just to differentiate. Remember, we got a bunch of Joes in here. It's true, we've got at least three so far. Right. But yeah, Joe M and Song, uh, they know tons about this, all this stuff. You know, they're, they're kind of uh, self-taught comics historians. And uh, I don't know, is there any other kind? I guess there is these days, but they both know a ton and they're both here and they, they have strong opinions. They do. So should we begin? Yeah. Yeah. Let's hear what they have to say. Let's do it. Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, together uh, and individually, uh, created or co-created, uh, you know, most of the the kind of basis of the the modern comics industry. I mean, the the yeah. there was obviously stuff before them, like uh, you know, in, especially from other companies, you know, Superman, Batman, all that stuff, kind of laid the groundwork before them. But kind of the modern age of or the was that part of the modern age or the Silver Age or or I guess it's the Silver Age, right? With all the the kind of height of Marvel. Oh, I would definitely say so. Certainly yeah. the height of Stanley and Jack Kirby. Sure. Right. So Marvel itself, you know, is, is was basically on the verge of bankruptcy, I think, right? And then yeah. Uh, yeah. Kirby Kirby's design supposedly kinda dragged them dragged them out of the, the gutter, as they say, you know. Right. Like uh all the stuff that they had created, they'd kinda put Marvel on kinda put Marvel on top after he was after he was done with them. Which he was done eventually, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, really, like everything. I kind of attribute everything that I love about comics to Jack Kirby. I mean, it, my inclination is to is to include Stan Lee as well, but he he just says so much stuff about how he did everything that I always want to exclude him now. Well, it's funny because yeah, there are like layers to this. That if you know, if you talk to somebody who doesn't know comics really well. They'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, like uh, Stan Lee, you know, he, he created Marvel Comics, right? And they, they might know not know about Jack Kirby. 
But right. then if you went to a comic book fan, you know, they'd be like, oh, yeah, like Jack Kirby, like, was, you know, essential was a, an important part of it. But then there's also a layer of, like, well, now, like, Jack Kirby's influence is so kind of trumped up that people are forgetting that Stan Lee had a lot to do with it, too. Right. Yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah. <clears throat> indeed. I know, Joe, you're a, you're a Stan Lee aficionado. I am indeed a Stan Lee aficionado, and I'm a Jack Kirby aficionado. Um yeah, I mean, I feel that there is something very singular to Stanley's writing that, while many people have imitated it, it can never—it's never duplicated. Yeah, uh, like if you look at a lot of like Kirby rough, uh, you know, unfinished pages, there would be these dialogue snippets that were very similar to what Lee would eventually write, but Lee's version of the copy was so much better. Right. Yeah, yeah I mean, I have to agree. It's like if you if you go and read any of that. Uh, the stuff that, that Kirby was doing when he started the Fourth World stuff for DC, like, you know, Jimmy Olsen and, and that, uh, it's it's clearly not the same writing as, uh, you know, Iron Man or The Incredible Hulk or Fantastic Four or something, right? So, oh, no, exactly, exactly. Right. Um, and I do feel that, you know, I mean, as good as they were as uh, collaborating, like, you know, Stanley and, you know, Stanley's writing in Spider-Man is really good, too. Yeah. Right now, for the for the uninitiated, those listening at home who may not, might not know, uh, Spider Man is not Jack Kirby. Spider Man is Stan Lee with Steve Ditko. Was anyone working at this at the store with me when one of the guys from like Dragons Den or Manhattan Comics called and they were like, "Who created Spider Man?" And, and they didn't want to believe Steve Ditko had anything to do with it. Huh? Kirby was involved in the creation of Spider Man as well. He did a lot of the, from what I understand, he did a lot of. Um, costume designs and stuff but yeah i actually saw a sketch recently like someone like there are no images existing from that but someone put it together from his description and ditko has actually debated that oh really i'm yeah. sure ditko, uh, someone, someone found them well no well ditko's um ditko kind of stands by the line that uh, jack kirby was originally drawn uh, called in to do spider-man his version of spider-man was very super heroic looking, like, you know, kind of Captain America-esque, like barrel chested and stuff. Like me. Yes, like you. Um, and Stanley wanted a more gangly character, which, despite Kirby's many, many talents, drawing people who did not conform to a certain physical shape was not one of them. Yeah. Like me. <laughs> one of the kind of sad things about Jack Kirby is, and I've read many Jack Kirby interviews, and Jack Kirby is pretty much incoherent. Across yeah, the board, just, like always, or, or just yeah, later just on? Yeah, he really wasn't, like, uh, like, he was never really able to communicate, like, vocally particularly mm. well. I mean, you know, not due to any sort of, like, physical malady, but, you know, he would say things like, I have the feeling that dinosaurs would use cavemen much like the way we'd use them today. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, it was just sort of, like, he was bad at spoonerisms, and he, particularly when he started to do a lot of interviews, which is to say, you know, when the fan press really kind of picked up in the 70s and 80s, he was starting to become bitter, and, and again, I'm trying to sound cruel, but his mind was going a little bit. So he would say things like, I created Spider-Man. I cre He would just ramble off characters he created that he had nothing to do with. Hmm. Um, or very little to do with, as well as, you know, characters he did legitimately create and has every reason to be proud of. You know, he maintained that he created Spider-Man at one point. I think it was just in an interview, and I think he misspoke. Uh, and Ditko, you know, like Ditko not being a man with any degree of a sense of humor. <laughs> right. You know, kind of wrote this long mimeographed essay explaining how Kirby had nothing to do with Spider-Man and, you know, he was given the task and he couldn't draw Spider-Man properly. He drew a character that was never used and 
Ditko, like, I think if you look online, you can find, like, Ditko's sketch of what Jack Kirby's Spider-Man looked like. Wow. Yeah, I saw something recently. It's, like, a guy wearing kind of, like, a red-blue suit that would be similar, but he's, like, holding a gun, and he is pretty bulky. Yeah, he kind of reminded me a little bit of, like, the Silver Agent from Astro City. Yeah, definitely. But, you know, whatever. Kirby did draw the cover of Amazing Fantasy 15, so technically the first image of Spider-Man anybody saw was Kirby's. Oh, I didn't realize that was Kirby. Yeah. Huh. Characters that Jack Kirby did create. I mean, should we go through like a handful of, you know, what they created together, what they created individually? Yeah, um, that's a long list. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that's the whole point of it is that, you know, like so much of what we take for granted today just came from, you know, launched from their, their collaborations or their individual efforts. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we can I mean, definitely hit the high points, if nothing else. Yeah. Well, uh, well, Captain America predates the, right. you know, because it was uh, uh, timely. That was uh, Simon Kirby. Right. Yes, Simon and Kirby. And then they kind of retooled him and put him in the Avengers when they Marvel started kind of taking off again. But speaking of the Avengers, the rest of the of the cast of that pretty much, you know, Hulk. Yeah. Um, pretty yeah, much. Hulk, Thor, Iron Thor, Man. Thor, Iron yeah. Man. Yeah, all the Thor universe. Um. Well, Iron Man looked kind of you know again bulky and and not uh, not too uh, uh, active when when uh, when he was originally. Appeared. I think it wasn't until much later, right? Who who did the? Was it Steranko? Was it Steranko who kind of like? Was it Steranko? Um, <laughs> I think Don Heck was the first person to give him the yellow and red, mm. the the classic armor, for lack of a better word term. Right. But yeah, I mean that. If you want to talk about those movies, the first the first time you see Iron Man, they sort of pay homage to it, right? Where uh, yeah, where he comes out in the the original armor. That was that was Kirby's armor. Right. Yeah, that was pretty cool. The Fantastic Four, they've been made into a movie. <laughs> it's yeah. not Avengers. They've been made into more than one movie. But. Yeah. Three movies. Yeah. Three? Yeah, oh, there's a Roger, Roger Corman, Corman one. <laughs> which is great. You can't bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> we should just do a whole episode about that. We really should, yeah. I mean, kind of like uh, to do with the legacy of Stanley, as he's gotten older and he seems more like as a just a mascot for marvel yeah he's like a figurehead yeah yeah and i feel like it's kind of lost on people whose contribution more yeah. so is he's just like the quaker oats guy or something right yeah because right. you remember when we were when we were kids and they would show all those cartoons he would be the narrator right and I, I yeah remember, i remember talking to people and they'd be like wait that's a real guy or like you know when they <laughs> like, they'd see him and be like you know wow i can't believe there's a face attached to that you know they you think it's just a, a voiceover guy right he right. has a great voice but I do remember, I think, uh, when I first got into comics, I think there's a brief period of time where I got Stan Lee and Willie Lumpkin confused. Wow. <laughs> I'm like, wait, which one? Okay, good. That's the mailman. What, yeah, one of them's a real guy. One of them's, uh... <laughs> one of them's the Marvel Comics postman. Right. Yes. And then years later, Stan Lee decided to portray him in a movie. That's, yeah. That's right. That didn't help. She, like, had reverted into being confused. <laughs> You just like, left the theater screaming. Yeah. It's like, now I don't know about anything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's become, you know, a, a, more of a, almost a character. Yeah. Like a Marvel character more so than, uh, you know, than, than kind of being recognized for his, for his actual contribution. He was just like Mr. Marvel. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas, like I was saying, once you get kind of uh, out of the, the kind of general pop culture awareness and, and start to get in a little more esoteric, like, you know, the comics people, all 
have this reverence for Kirby, which is not undeserved, but it's a very kind of, you know, it's like a like a Beatles or Elvis kind of thing where it's just like it's switched over, hasn't it? Yeah, it's like it's almost like a badge of of knowledge in comics. You know, it's like man, all that was Jack Kirby. Stan Lee didn't do anything. Yeah, no, I mean, which again, there was the, particularly of our age group, we, like, we all entered our, you know, entered our late teens and 20s in, during a severe time of, like, of uh, Stanley backlash. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think part of that was, was kind of, like, all the creator's rights issues and stuff like that, like, him being the kind of figurehead of Marvel was, you know, part of that, that it's like, all right, wait, Marvel screwed us all over. And, and, and in the case of Jack Kirby, that Marvel did actually screw him over. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Was, oh, yeah, totally. Um, and Steve Gerber. I mean, that's that's how I kind of found out about Jack Kirby. Like, I, I could definitely recognize his art growing up if you pointed it out. I wouldn't necessarily be like, oh, that's Jack Kirby. But, it's, you know, his art was so distinct when I, you know, like reading Wizard Magazine because, you know, I'm, I'm a bit younger than you guys. And <laughs> Wizard Magazine would cover that stuff, you know, like uh, the Bob Kane and, you know, all that stuff. And uh, same thing with Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. And I was like, oh, wow, that's crazy. Yeah, the Stan and Jack stuff, is it gets a little bit more confused. Well... Stan Lee has maintained, um, and you know there there have been other like comic book historians who agree with this that like you know because remember Stan Lee doesn't own anything either. That's right. Yeah. Um, was that you know like Stan Lee you know the kind of financial <laughs> uh, financial disparity had to do with the fact that uh, you know of course, you know Stan Lee was not only writing like whatever eight bo- eight to twelve books, but he was also the editor of the company and he was doing the marketing and the advertising. Right. Um, where Jack Kirby star of Marvel. Yeah, where Jack Kirby was was a freelancer, um, and in fact, you know, according to Stan Lee, um, you know, Lee did offer Kirby a position, the position of art director, and Kirby turned it down. Mm-hmm. Why did he say why? Was he thinking he'd get better from a different company or DC, um, maybe? You know, I don't know. Like my guess is that if you look at these sort of, my guess is assuming that this is all, you know, assuming that this is all one hundred percent true. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are a couple reasons. I think that though they work together, I don't think Jack Kirby ever really liked Stanley that much. Um, mm-hmm. I, and I don't think it was necessarily a person. I mean, I think it was partially a personality clash, but I also think that, uh, remember that Jack Kirby has got a good 10 years on, uh, Stanley and Jack Kirby was a professional artist when Stanley was the, you know, owner of Marvel's nephew, right. uh, who, you know, kind of worked there and suddenly this guy's my boss. Um, I think there were issues with that. And I also think that, that, you know, if you look at Jack Kirby's career, Jack Kirby worked for everybody in between, yeah. like, 1940 and Marvel Comics. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he was a depression kid. He got, I mean, he probably, like, a lot, you saw a lot of companies fold. He probably lost a lot of work in his time. And I think that, like, with short-term thinking, I can make more money drawing eight, book, you know, like, whatever, 150 pages a month. Yeah than I can um, as art director and draw maybe 40 pages a month because for all I know, Marvel will fold in six months. Yeah, I mean, I think that he was uh, probably more interested in the immediate as well. Like you were saying, it's like a like Depression era stuff, right? You know, like, it's like this story about him going to him going to college, you know, and dropping out after like a month or something like that, going to art school because he wasn't, I guess, wasn't interested in doing like long-term projects or whatever. And I mean, you know, his passion was for art, for drawing, not for right. necessarily, you know, making sure that the freelancers had their, you know, had their art in on time and, and you know, keeping tabs of who's going to ink what. And like, he just wanted to draw books, I think. And it's, um, yeah. And I think that there's also that um, in many ways, I think like Jack Kirby ended up sort of almost being the default art director anyway, in that, you know, Stan Lee, like 
I forget whose quote it was. I think it's like Flo Sternberg's or one of the members of the uh, the bullpen that was that uh, Stan wanted uh, Jack Kirby to draw like Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko to draw like Steve Ditko, and everybody else to draw like Jack Kirby. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of like, you know, like uh, when a new artist is tried out, a lot of times Jack Kirby did the initial layouts for books. I know he did that with Ramita for Daredevil, for example. Um, yeah, like, you know, Jack's responsibilities were not just here are my fantastic four pages, I'm going home. Right. Right. Now, when when he eventually kind of like left for a bit and went to DC, was it still kind of that same like freelance artist role, or did DC like lure him away with like, hey, we'll give you? Did they offer him like the same kind of thing, like an art director position? DC DC offered him like complete control and. You, you, you can do whatever you want. We just want Jack Kirby. Yeah. Right. And they let him move to California because his health was failing him. So he needed the uh, more arid climate, uh, which was unheard of at the time. To have a freelancer not live in New York, basically. Right. Yeah. Uh, and did he get uh, did he get to retain any ownership of the fourth world characters or was it just they paid him more up front and he was cool with that? Um, I don't, you know, honestly, that I'm not sure of. Um, that's a good question. I think that I think that that's one of that's one of those things. That, what's that book come? Uh, Comic book heroes is that what it's called? That um, sort of like a history of of the guys that created most of this stuff back then. But they sort of they he sort of talks about how um, how the exact deal that uh, that Infantino and uh, and Kirby made at the time is still like a pretty closely guarded secret. Like neither of them have been really upfront about about what the details uh, were of it. They're like cryptic and they hide details or whatever, you know. So you can only sort of guess. Yeah. Uh, again, for anybody who's not as well versed in in the comics lore, you know, after kind of co-creating and and you know serving as as the de facto you know in-house art style producer of for Marvel for years, then Jack Kirby kind of defected and went to DC, which was it still exists now, but there was a very you know heated rivalry at the time between the two companies. Yeah. Um, um, and for him to go to DC was huge, and DC knew it was huge, and they would run giant you know blurb ads that said like kirby is here you know that, like on that's, that's the cover of the first issue of uh that kirby did of uh superman's pal jimmy olsen right yeah yeah, yeah. what it says like on the cover like kirby is here yeah i like more so than the, than the fact that it's you know a superman book it's like it's a kirby book which yeah. uh, you know uh, now i guess that sounds doesn't sound as outrageous because you know we, we like as a result of of you know Kirby's efforts, in part that we we are a lot more aware of kind of comics creators and and uh, and there's such a thing as a kind of a superstar artist and or a superstar writer who you know that's that's more of a selling point than the book itself. Which yeah, I mean, but at the on, time, you know, in the in the seventies, was it late sixties or early seventies? I think it was, it was like early seventies, right? Yeah, yeah, seventies. You know, at the time, it wasn't like you know, m- most people didn't even care who the hell did did their comic books. Yeah, yeah. and that was one thing actually to Stanley's credit. I mean, as insofar as I know, he's certainly one of the. If he's not the first, he's one of the first people who gave everybody in his comics credit. Yeah, gave him nicknames and everything. Yeah, yeah. nicknames like. We would not, I can, you know, while it's very possible without Stanley, sooner or later would know the names of artists, would know the names of writers. I seriously doubt anybody would name an, an inker or a letterer, and certainly not a colorist. Going back and reading some of the, you know, if you go back and read the, the Marvel um, phone books, what are they called? Uh, uh, the, essentials? Uh, the essentials. Essentials, yeah. yeah. And, you know, those have full credits for everybody. 
And then yeah. if you go and read some of the DC ones, that probably a little bit earlier, but like within the same time frame, it's just like written by uh, I don't know. Yeah, you know, and like uh, right to an artist, you know. Yeah, it's probably Kurt Swan, but who knows? And so, yeah, part of the marketing of Marvel, I think, was him kind of creating that you know mythology of you know giving everybody a nickname and having them be you know like oh the Marvel bullpen and, and creating this kind of team uh, image of them being this this kind of uh, you know there's something that you wanted to be a part of. You wanted to be on the Marvel team and not just like oh yeah, I bought a Superman book, I forgot. Yeah. It's kind of like Rat Pack kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And it, it, it's funny, actually, looking at pictures of those guys, you know, they're... <laughs> I always get a kick out of, like, you know, you look at pictures of uh, comic artists and comic writers now, and you get, like, a lot of kind of, like, fat guys with beards and glasses and stuff. Right. And you look at, like, old pictures of guys like Kirby and Frazetta, and it, it kind of looks like they could... And they'd probably kick your ass in an alleyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Frazetta was basically had a body like Conan. I mean, like... I totally. He was just drawing himself. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, 70s, uh, Kirby defects, goes, does stuff for DC. And it's it's interesting. You know, he goes kind of further out there by far, uh, art-wise. Like, he gets to do stuff, because he has complete creative control, he gets to do stuff that he couldn't do before. And... and incorporates, you know, not only does his, his kind of layouts and his, his kind of artistic, you know, pencil style uh, go into new areas, but he also starts to incorporate kind of collage stuff. And, and Well, he did that in Fantastic Four, too. Uh, did he? Oh, uh, yeah. If you read the Galactus trilogy, there are, um, there, there are you know, like there are cult, yeah, collage pages and stuff like that. <laughs> Didn't he do some involving the Inhumans, too? Like, uh, I had some cool collage pages. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, you know, since it's basically around the same time. Uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, but I mean, well, there's an essay by John Hodgman uh, about uh, Jack Kirby. I believe I believe he wrote it on his, no, it wasn't on his death. I think it was uh, written around the time that the Mark Evanier book on Jack Kirby came out. Oh, yeah. Um, where Hodgman points out, that, like, where Hodgman states that basically Jack Kirby's fourth world stuff, which is, say, his initial stuff for DC, is in many ways the most important, the most important superhero comics written for the reason that it was Jack Kirby who foresaw that comic books, superhero comic books uh, specifically, did not have to be limited in scope to one or two issues. Like, he was the first guy to see them as this grandiose saga right. with a beginning and an end that could interwove, that, like, would interwove through, like, several titles and stuff like that. Mm. Um, and it's, you know, a very accurate statement, and um, I agree with it in many ways. Unfortunately, there's a lot of this stuff in the fourth world that's kind of unreadable. Yeah. Um, most of the fourth world stuff is other guys taking out, taking over. What is he? I mean, how many issues is the New Gods? Yeah, the New Gods went 11 issues, and I think all the books went about, uh, well, Kirby was on them for about a year apiece. Yeah, yeah. But, long. but altogether, that's 44 books. Right. Um, all happening concurrently and kind of tied to a, a, a coherent world. Right. I mean, coherent in, in well, a way that only Jack Kirby could, could right. create. You know? I, I use yeah. coherent loosely, but in yeah. a related world. But I mean, I don't want to point out, even though some of it's crap. One is like there are stories like the Pact, which is one of just the best comic book stories ever, which explains the uh, the, the deal that Darkseid and High Father made by, by switching their sons at birth. Oh, right. Ah, yeah. For peace, and it's really well told, and really has this like kind of like operatic feel to it. That being said, then let's take the other end of that. That now you know uh, the uh, the things that we're ascribing to. Uh, you know Kirby's influence has positive traits: the creator, kind of oh, yeah. superstar creator, and the you know like incessant crossovers. Yeah, the crossover, yeah. kind of shared world. You know, yeah. uh, 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 epic 
you know, comic book thing, those are all like serious faults of the comic book industry now. Right. Is it, well, superstar artists not so much right now, but like kind of you know, '90s into the early aughties, it was. Uh, yeah, but that'll have been flow. They've brought it back. I mean, haven't they? The last I was paying attention to, a few years ago, it, they had started going back into all that like variant cover stuff and all the stuff that was right. really like exemplary of the '90s. Right. So, yeah. I don't know. It, uh, they do yeah. it in a quiet way, but they still do a lot of variant covers. I mean, like I, I, you know, I've just been looking through a lot of current comics recently. But you know, whatever. Right. It's not like, but 30 covers for Wolverine. Buy them. Exactly. Oh, I remember so those one days. Of them, one of them has a hologram. And the other one is like dipped in gold in, you know, gold. <laughs> and Mark Grunewald's ashes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait, that actually happened. That's With it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get back to Stan for a second, because he also, uh, as we said, in addition to uh, writing the books and kind of co-creating the characters or creating the characters outright, uh, he also was responsible for, and we touched on this briefly moments ago, the the the, the kind of marketing of Marvel as a whole, like it, it was kind of having that uh, that Marvel style, you know, without everything explicitly crossing over, as uh, you know, as as Kirby would do, like having everything be in sync, uh, you know, be in a shared universe, be have the same kind of uh, feel to it at least. You know, oh, that you, you knew when you were reading a Marvel comic. Oh, definitely, and you knew that you know, uh, you know, even though you didn't see it, you kind of knew that Spider Man was probably scared when Galactus invaded Earth too. Right. right. You know, like you imagine that affected him. Granted, it's it's resulted in him having a you know consistent paycheck from Marvel for the last sixty years or whatever. But mm-hmm. but that that was a part. You know, he wasn't just kind of like you said, like the Kirby's job wasn't just to show up and you know do do his Fantastic Four pencils and leave for the day. Like Stan Lee was involved in, you know, everything, every every element of that business. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Other than the drawing of the comics. Exactly. Yeah. Using a uh, Hodgman's essay that I mentioned as a uh, jumping off point, the other thing is that like what Stan Lee seemed to understand that nobody, that as far as I know, nobody, in, certainly nobody in superhero comics seemed to understand prior to that, is that you're that characters aren't just a guy in a suit. Yeah, he's the he's the person that gave the characters two dimensions, right? He gave them three dimensions. He gave them uh, uh, two or three. Two. One up, you song. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, he gave them three dimensions. He gave them, uh, you know, he gave them a supporting cast. He had yeah. characters evolve. I mean, if you look at if you read Spider Man, like classic Spider Man, and you should. Peter Parker is a high school kid with no friends who like is bitten by a spider, sure, but also has a girlfriend that's kind of on or off again, and then it's definitely off, and then has another girlfriend. <laughs> well, because he kills her. Whoa, whoa, spoilers. That movie hasn't come out yet, so no. Wait, what are you talking about? But, no, what? I was talking about Betty Brandt. I was oh, talk- okay. oh, I jumped to Gwen. I thought yeah. you were talking about Gwen Stacy. Yeah. Or yeah, but I mean, like, Gwen. he has, you know, like... He has multiple relationships in his life. He had, like, it's not, I mean, you know, I've been reading a lot of Silver Age Superman stuff recently, but, you know, it's like, you look at some of these comics, you look at some of these DC books from 1969, and, you know, like, Lois Lane is still wants to marry Superman and hates Clark Kent, you know, for 40 years at this point. Yeah, and he's just messing with her for most of the time. Yeah, and he's just being kind of a jerk about it for most of the time, but there's no evolution of characters, and, you know, and as much as I love DC stuff, like, all those characters are written alike. They're all, like, stoic, kind of, like, milk-toasty guys. I mean, that's actually, you know, earlier on, I think, Pete, you had mentioned something about, like, 
was Marvel's heyday sort of in Silver Age or Bronze Age or Modern Age or whatever, you know, but I mean, what do they, when they say like the first official Silver Age comic is that Flash, yeah. that Flash comic, really the, the thing that sort of defines Silver Age comics as a breaking off point, you know, from what had come before was, uh, was the, the extra dimensionality that Stan Lee had given those characters, you know, mm. I mean, I, I've always felt like that was, that's where you can differentiate really. I mean, and, and it's true. Marvel, you know, Marvel understand and Jack, they created that world that we know of characters that could actually be related to. And, and, and DC continued to do, continue to do stories in the, in the golden age style all throughout while, you know, Stanley was writing stuff about people with, uh, with issues, you know, yeah, with right. personalities or, you know, DC, you'd go over and they'd be like, Superman's new power is revealed. He can shoot miniature versions of himself out of his fingers that look like a rainbow. There's a new kryptonite. Oh, no. (laughs) Robin, you don't understand. I have to wear a new costume every day of the week. (laughs) (laughs) Um... You know, but but like the other thing with the Superman stuff, uh, with the Superman stuff particularly, is it's not like, all right, they're doing it, you know, they're doing it like 10 years after Marvel started. You know, it's just, it's almost like a stubbornness, like, and they're still even uh, abiding by the same format where the, uh, or an issue of Action Comics from 1969 will have like, you know, four seven page stories in it. Right. You know, that involves Superman being turned into a lion. (laughs) Yeah. A super lion. Well, he's not going to lose his powers just because he's a lion. Come on. So the, the evolution of the, the kind of substance of comics is, is you think tied to the actual like physical evolution of comics. So that as more comics are published and more kind of, you know, as you can get bigger, kind of more in-depth stories about comics, that then leads to the characters being being given more depth and then more backstory. And then that kind of cycles into eventually what we have with the, with the you know, kind of epic mess of, of continuity. Well, you know, there, there's always going to be, there's, there's a downside to everything. Right. Star Wars bequeathed a lot of shitty movies. It really did, yeah. Actually, yeah. I mean, and as did Harrison, because I mean, all of all of the stuff that we complain about in the world of like Hollywood movies can be back to Star Wars at this point, you know. But mm-hmm. Star Wars is kind of awesome. Where uh, Jack Kirby's The New Gods gave us the Masters of the Universe live action movie. That's true. <laughs> Wait, did what? Really? Well, uh, the. Oh, you go, Adam. Okay. Um, the, the director was a big Kirby fan, and his original intent was to make a Fourth World movie, um, but he couldn't really pitch it. So then he wanted to bring on Jack Kirby as a consultant um, and to do like conceptual art, but the studio totally wasn't up for that idea. But if you if you watch the movie, you can totally see like traces of Jack Kirby. And it's like got moments where you're like, shooting lasers out of his eyes for one. Yeah, blown <laughs> my mind twice today. Thank you. Yeah. And <laughs> they even they even wanted to put uh, special. He wanted to put a special like uh, acknowledgement to Jack Kirby in the credits, but once again, the studio completely nixed it. I I actually saw it on the big screen for the first time since it was originally out when I was a kid uh, two weeks ago, and uh, I was explaining to our friend Susanna like just like look, it's totally it's got those elements like uh, when. Skeletor and his troops uh, descend upon, you know, Earth. It just totally looks like a boom tube's going off, and and it's just insane. Like, being old enough to acknowledge, you know, like, oh, this is totally Jack Kirby. <laughs> uh, boom tube.
So speaking about being old enough to acknowledge Jack Kirby, uh, I must admit that... You're uh, older than me, of course. Well, yeah, I always admit that. But I also must admit that uh, for a long time when I was younger, I did not like Jack Kirby's art oh, at cool. all. Oh, yeah. No, I actually, I had that issue, too. I think I, just, I think part of it was the contemporary art we were looking at was, you know, an old man who's, you know, basically an old man who's, you know, I think had suffered like a stroke by that point in his life. Well, no, I mean, because I used to, I used to go to like conventions and stuff when I was a kid. And at, at the time, it was before Kirby had died, you know, so his stuff was, I mean, there was so much of it out there. And, mm -hmm. you know, comic art had, it had evolved so much since, since he was doing what he was doing, since he, since he was big. That if you went to a convention or a comic store, you know they and they would have they would have just like racks of twenty five cent bins of comics, and it, I'd just rate them. I'd go in with like five dollars and just come out with stacks of Jack Kirby comics. But my intention was not to buy them because I wanted to sit and appreciate and dissect Jack Kirby's amazing work. At the time, I was like, you know, Todd McFarlane is king. This Jack Kirby guy is hilarious. Let's go sit in a in a garage and look at these and make fun of them. <laughs> I think that at the time I, I just, you know, I was, I was probably more interested in the sort of flashiness of, of that current era of comics, like the late eighties to early nineties. And you uh, liked the complete absence of all fundamentals. Right. I mean, I, whatever, whatever, dude, I was a kid, but uh, it, like I said, it was flashy. It was glossy, you know, and it, it was exciting because it didn't have to make sense. You know, it, when Spider-Man's swinging through the air, sure, he's got three butt cheeks, but it looked cool. Yeah. You no, know, like, I didn't, I don't think that I understood at all what was going on with Jack Kirby. Like, I, all I knew is that uh, I would look at some of his pencil sketches and be like, wow, this is, this is really well drawn. And then when it would get, when it, when, you know, when I'd look at an issue of Commandy or something, I'd be like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. What's up with that guy's eyes? Why isn't he but, looking yeah. right? Well, what was that? What was that? That magazine? It was published in like oversized format. Was that the Kirby Collector or something? Kirby Collector, yeah. I yeah. I would just enjoy buying those and just looking at like the uninked, uncolored, penciled pages. Those things were just mind-blowingly awesome. Yeah, his pencils were amazing. But he, I mean, didn't Kirby? Because he was was uh, in the military during World War II for like a year or something. I I have a feeling that I seem to remember that he uh, did some some war drawings as well. Huh. Was yeah, there's some, and they kind of look like real, like, they're the most unkirby looking sketches ever, as I recall. Right, I mean, they weren't stylized in any way, but I mean, it was like drawings that he actually did while he was at right. war. Right, so he could draw normal, well, right. normal, but, you know, he could draw the kind of mundane world, like, in, in surprising detail, but then... He's not trying the mundane, you know, normal world. So, well, that was another another point of confusion for me was that you know I was also aware at the time that Kirby had done all that other stuff prior to prior to his superhero books. You know, he had done like <laughs> like Young Romance and uh, right, yeah, you know, like a lot of really reality based based comic books, and they looked realistic. You know, like they looked kind of basic, sort of pared down, realistic stuff of the time period. And I was like, well, obviously this guy can draw. Why is he have? Why does he have a style later on? <laughs> you know? but over time i think that uh you know i started to look and it wasn't all about for me it wasn't all about like the proportions and cross hatching and everything you know which i liked earlier on like i you know i'd be like i'm not going to get into specific artists or anything but you know, he did a lot of stuff with space as well i think that that, that was new um as far as like interrelational space or like yeah. space the final frontier like outer space no i'm talking about like uh the the exploitation of of the available space on a comic book page and right. within the panel you know like he was one of the first people that really exploited the z-plane 
you know, right. Where you had you had stuff that was so drastically foreshortened, you know, that where you had like a hand that would be like coming perhaps even off the panel at times, you know. Mm. Yeah. And I don't think anybody had ever really done that before, you know. Well, he understood, you know. There's there's a how do I describe this? Like there there's perspective in the terms of you know literally if you were drawing a figure in three dimensions. You know, and his hand is pointing at you. The hand should be somewhat bigger to mimic how your eye would look at it. Right. Um, Kirby knew exactly how to push it so the hand was in the most over what it would over what it would you know like be in the real world, but to still have it somehow fit into that body without it being, without it like let's say, you know, I will name artists. You know, or like if Rob Liefeld would do that, the hand would just look wrong. Right. Yeah. Right. Like it would always look right. Your eye would always accept what it was, and it wouldn't be confused by it. Yeah. And for something to be as 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 garish, and for lack of a better word, I'll say I'll say gaudy because that actually does uh, reference a different artist who was intending to be that way. Um, you know, as his stuff was, is brightly colored with heavy heavy black ink textures in there. You know, like that didn't necessarily represent the way that we might look at something, you know, like you would look at like electronics that he created, like some sort of technology. And there's oh, man, that's some strange faces that don't, they don't really seem like they make sense. But as far as, as far as knowing how to, to lead the audience's eye to look at what it, at what it was that he wanted you to look at. I mean, he was, he was a master of it, you know, yeah, he, he created such complex, such complex designs. And, and you're not overwhelmed by them. Like, you, you know what you're looking at still. And that's, that's hard to do. Oh, yeah. No, there's so many things he could do. I mean, he, you know, I almost hate I almost hate saying this because it's sort of like, it seems like such a boneheaded comment to make. But, like, he, he was could, a good drawer. Yeah, no, but he could, he could, <laughs> he, could illi- he could illustrate and for better, lack of a better term, like, choreograph a fight sequence that always had power and, and followed, like, followed a story sense to it. Yeah. Like, if you look at a lot of uh, fight sequences in comics, you know, again, in the 90s, which is the nadir of comics, it would just be, you know, it could be 22 pages, but it would just look like people posing. Right. Yeah. Right. Where, and there are, you know, and there are other people who could do it well. Like, actually, you know, Ramita could do it well. Uh, Ditko could do it well. Uh, Frank Miller could do it very well. But, uh, you know, you kind of look like, man, thing must have just broke Hulk's jaw with that punch. Yeah. 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 That's an important, that's what this genre is. For the, you know, yeah. not, it's, it's not comics it's, as a genre, but superheroes as a genre is action books. It's fights. And, yeah. and you know, and, you know, you can, that's the gravy of, uh, well, it may not be gravy. I mean, it's more important than gravy, but the the writing, you know, nothing's more the, important than gravy. That's the meat and potatoes. <laughs> the meat and potatoes. One is the meat, one is the potatoes. But the action is 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 key to to the whole thing. And then the you know having the characters you care about, having you know why are they fighting? Why do I care? Is is another you know is the other important element that those two were yeah. kind of so firing on all cylinders at the same time. Oh yeah, definitely is is what yeah. created this unique kind of situation. I was just going to ask, um, considering all they've done together and the lasting, like, legacy. So say if they never kind of made it to the collaborating stage, do you think on their own they could have established, like, legacies such as this? Like, Stan Lee, if he just did everything he did but with a different team of artists, do you think it, like, uh, it would have caught on just the same? Or do you think Jack Kirby's art, and the same thing, just like... Uh, 
in Jack Kirby establishing himself in the superhero genre? Like, say he he started at DC doing superhero stuff with no Stan Lee. Do you think they'd both kind of have the same legendary status? Well, it depends on who they worked with, because it's it's you know it's funny earlier where I I mentioned that you know they became you know like Elvis or the Beatles or that kind of thing, and and it's it's parallels that if you run you know like compare all the you know the acclaim that the Beatles work gets, and then look at their solo work. Like you just see in you know like like in John Lennon's solo work, you see the absence of Paul McCartney. Kind of you know you see you know, yeah. you know what this needs is a nice pop kind of glaze to it. And the same thing you know Paul McCartney's songs, you could listen to be like oh this is a great you know poppy catchy tune, but it needs like it's completely vapid. Mm-hmm. Like needs, I never feel it, that way at all. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but like you know, you similar... can say, "Wow, Ram's the greatest album ever." That's what you <laughs> and it's the same kind of thing where you see, you know, like all right, if you look at stuff that that uh, you know, Jack, they each had successes, you know, to to greater or lesser extents afterwards. But yeah. like if you look at anything Stan Lee's done, and you know, recently it's it's mostly crap. You know, not oh, re- like not... when he when he reimagined the DC universe, that was yeah. awful. Yeah, but it's been a consistent a consistent sort of bad for a long time before that as well. You yeah. Know? Yeah, what really, true. I mean, what is really right after like nineteen, you know, seventy? Right. Um, it is. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I always felt bad for the uh, imagine, just imagine stuff because it, it. Like, first of all, I wonder how much of that Stanley actually wrote. Um, second, you know, on some level, wow, an eighty-year-old man can't can't draw good super can't write good superhero comics anymore. What do you want from life? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying necessarily now, but overall, his his post. Uh, heyday career has been significantly lacking. I yeah. Don't know. yeah but uh, what has he done I mean, like, post-heyday? That's why, like... Doing tops, right? Yeah, but I mean, oh, were you talking about Kirby or uh, whatchamacallit? Well, I was just saying in comparison, we're talking about Jack doing a... or Stan Lee doing um, Just Imagine on the other on the other side. He had, you know, Jack Kirby doing those tops comics, right? Like Bombay. Yeah. I was actually just looking at a picture of Bombast. <laughs> but correct me if I'm wrong, though, but, like, wasn't it... I believe the deal Kirby had with Topps was he was sort of the basically he was the muse. Like he basically drew a bunch of crazy crap, and other people would run with it. Oh. That was my idea. That was my understanding of what Kirby did with Topps, or what the what was it called the Kirby verse? Yeah. Why not? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what uh, that was my understanding of what his deal was with them. But uh, and I've never actually read them, so who knows? Yeah, right. I, I mean, I've got them in a box. I just I know one of these days I'm going to get to them. <laughs> One thing I want to say about Stanley, um, and again, this is you know again I'm contrasting them with uh, DC was that you know Stanley who is you know well into his like, like well into his 40s in the 1960s somehow managed to write teenagers without seeming to pander to them at all. That's a good point. That is true. Yeah, he did. Um, and somehow, and even though that, like, you know, if you look at DC when they did teenagers, it's the most pandering thing you've ever read in your life. DC's teenagers are ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. but and they also like, like Teen Titans is, you know, insane, and it's all like I like the rock and roll music and hollering Haddock. This is the best band since I heard the Shellfish at Atlantis High. There, but you know, somehow, and Stan Lee would make up like slang. Like I, remember, I think I remember one comic of one uh, issue of Spider Man. Uh, somebody points out how voomy. Mary Jane looks, and I sincerely doubt that anybody has ever used the word "voomy" in their life. I'm going to from now on. Yeah, well, boom, <laughs> maybe. But yeah, it is just. Uh, but like, he would make up his slang. He, um, you know, and his stuff is patently ridiculous. Yet at the same time, it per- it works perfectly, and in, it, it's some sort of. 
like there are elements you can I can understand why the Marvel characters work. Like I understand the three dimension. You know, I understand creating real characters, giving them. I understand like the superhero books having a soap opera B story. You know, continuing. You know, like uh, creates an identification with the characters and stuff like that. But I don't understand how like the, when you get to the nuts and bolts of his writing, like it confounds me. Like by all logic, it should not work, and it's beautiful, and it works beautifully. Like, by all logic, it should just be, like, this is a bunch of nonsense phrasing and, uh, you know, pseudo-hepcat language. Right. Mm-hmm. But it, you know, it, it always it always hits the mark. <sighs> now, once I say 100%, I'm sure I'll think of exceptions, but 100%, it hits the bullseye. For doing, like, Somebody superhero comics aimed at 14-year-olds, he never fails. Hmm. Or never failed between, whatever, 1961 and 1970. Well, that, that's there's a uh, you know there's a thing in advertising I guess where it's like you know if you're trying to sell to twelve year olds you don't write for twelve year olds you write for the sixteen year olds that the twelve year olds think they want to be like that's yeah. right yeah so I think that could be the uh, you know like Stanley's not writing for fourteen year olds he's writing for you know twenty year olds yeah twenty year olds or whatever so like and when you you know it, it comes off as kind of childlike and and yet not childish mm-hmm. yeah. No, no, that, that's definitely true. Um, but yeah, like I said, like like his language choices, they, they always work. It, 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 he, for somebody who, as far as I know, did not have much of the way of a formal education and certainly just had a natural ability to write. He's got a lot of like flair and he always has, you know, like in the, in the way that even the way that he uh, comes across in conversation. Oh, yeah. Know, there was a reason why he was the narrator of all those shows. I mean, he's, his voice and the way that the words that he picked were really larger than life. You know, I, and flair in a charming kind of way, not flair in a zany kind of way. You know? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, yeah, it's not really grading. No. Although, like, you know, he's sort of, he's created himself a character and his character is simultaneously like hip and avuncular. <laughs> Right. What was the uh, what was the DC kind of parody version of uh, Stan Lee that they had for a little while? Jack Kirby created the Funky Flashman. Right, the Funky Flashman. <laughs> Jack Kirby created the Funky Flashman purposely to like belittle Stan Lee. I do want to mention that the uh, you know Jack Kirby's kind of creator fight is you know fight for creator ownership or or kind of greater creator participation which uh, you know i mainly know because he uh, he came back around and was a big part of supporting steve gerber when steve gerber had his yeah, his right. battle with marvel for uh, howard the duck royalties one of my first exposures to kirby uh was through destroyer duck which was strictly a a uh uh fundraiser basically for Steve Gerber's lawsuit against Marvel for Howard the Duck. And so like for for Kirby to come out so kind of strongly, you know, in favor of of creators' rights, which then, you know, kind of like, you know, everybody pushing a boulder a little bit and eventually it gets rolling to a certain extent. Like uh he was one of the first ones to just kind of start that that Yeah. You know, before him no everybody just kind of accepted the fact that they're like, oh, I show up to work and I drew, you know, I made up some characters for Marvel and now they own them. I mean, to, to be to be fair, he actually really did do a lot more, though. I mean, like, yeah. you know, he didn't just go in and draw the characters. He was, like, Marvel pretty much is him, you know? I, I mean, him and Stan Lee, you know? Right. Still fighting over that. Like, I, apparently they're uh, involved in a... His estate was recently involved in a lawsuit against Disney for uh, regaining the rights to some of his characters. I think they lost that already, or, like, the court just kind of tossed it out. 
Yeah, just sad. The thing that always gets me about that, and granted, Kirby's long dead, and you know how much do his heirs really deserve? Iron Man writes out of nowhere. But the thing that always, the thing that you know kind of makes me sad about that uh, that that kind of thing is, you know, if you gave the Kirby estate one percent of the money that you make off, for yeah. argument's sake, Iron Man. <laughs> like, if it was very little, it would be huge, right? Yeah. Exactly. It would be, you know, it would be very little off your books and millions of dollars to them. Right. Right. And, I mean, even, you know, just the recognition that some of these guys don't even get. Mm-hmm. I mean, credit, you know, Kirby is is credited in a lot of the he, – he's got credits in most of these now, right? Yeah. 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 Um, and, you know, like the, the Superman thing where, like, Siegel and Schuster. I mean, that's a weird one, too, because they've, like, actually relinquished their rights and then tried to get them back and stuff. And, you know, haven't they kind of gone back and forth with uh, with the family having the rights and then the family sold the rights and then the family got the rights again? Well, I think they, yeah, they uh, signed away all the rights in, I think, just for credits (laughs) or something at some point. Uh, Probably take some more research. But, yeah, they did something where they basically the, the... Creators themselves signed away the rights, and then the family has been chasing after it after that. So it's not right. really. Who's, I'm, I'm sorry, I think I lost you somewhere. Who signed away the rights here? Siegel and, Siegel and Schuster. Because they got credit and a yearly and a yearly salary in the '70s. Oh, maybe that's what it was. That they get they weren't getting like you know a percentage. They weren't getting ownership, but they were getting credit and and some money on the side. Yeah, they were getting a byline, and I think initially they were getting something like DC was giving them 15 grand a year or something like that. Right. But, um, and then I, I think that, well, I think, oh God, and I've read this, I think they got a very big, like, you know, kind of lump sum. And then in addition to that, and not a very, very big, but like, you know, a six, a low six figure lump sum. Mm-hmm. And then they each got, I think 15 grand a year, you know, up in, per, in perpetuity. Well, until they, I think that was just tied to them, right? Like their family is still not getting that. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then it gets confusing after that. Which is why the families are now in in court. We have not discussed, which we would be remiss not to, in in regards to uh, Jack Kirby, is the particular kind of like stylistic uh, tropes of his, like oh. the Kirby crackle, his crazy ass machinery. Ah, yeah. Right. Uh, the, the weird dy- uh, dynamicism of his artwork, um, his zoftig women. Yeah. Um, that signature pose where the fist, like the guy, is like standing planted with its feet, his feet. Uh, Maybe about shoulder length apart, and one hand like reaching out. Is like, no! My favorite comic cover of, of all time is uh, uh, Captain America. It's right after they stopped reprinting, so like 105 or something. I can't remember the issue, but I've got. I think I've got like three copies of it because I just love it so much. Every time I see it for sale somewhere, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna grab this. It's a, it's a picture of Captain America in that signature Kirby pose where. One of his hands is like extending into our space, you know, and uh, his other hand is, you know, in front of in front of his mouth, and he's screaming to the audience, "I've found an army of underground killers, and I have to go fight them alone." There's <laughs> like these arrows pointing in between his legs to a cave behind him that says, "This way for action," and <laughs> like like bullet heads are flying through the air, and you have no idea where they're coming from. It's just it's just nuts. You know, but it, it really does look like one of the most exciting comics. <laughs> yeah. Imagine reading. <laughs> I can never I'm like, who's this guy talking to? Who's he yelling at? Is, he, <laughs> is the Falcon somewhere off screen? <laughs> you know? Well, that's like, you know, Song, you and I were talking about this earlier as far as special effects and stuff that, like, you can do realistic or you can do, you know, exciting. 
because yes, like there, there's a lot of you know there all reality is out there you see it all the time like yeah. if you just do perfect realism it's just going to be like oh yeah and there, there's a guy but you can you know if you have a style you can make it just kind of dynamic and super crazy and and make it the type the kind of book that you that you want to see or or buy every time you see it Well, that was both fun and educational, wouldn't you say, Pete? I'd say it was fedgicational. <laughs> That's horrible, isn't it? <laughs> um, but yeah, those guys really know their stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I love having them on, and uh, hopefully they'll come back and talk about things in the future. I'm sure they will. They always do. Yeah. They know way too much. Yeah, I, I feel a little bit, uh, you know, out-nerded, but that's okay. Yeah, it makes us cooler by default now, right? I think so, a little bit. I like it. I yeah. like it. Um... So, uh, what are you going to be playing us off with today, Pete? Today's uh, today's outro song is a, a song called "Stop Talking About Comic Books or I'll Kill You" by uh, by a band called Ukla the Moth, who do a lot of nerdy kind of songs like this. But uh, yeah, this was a favorite uh, when we worked at the comic shop together, if you remember, because sometimes you really feel like that. It's true. <laughs> but yeah, so hopefully enjoy that. Hopefully you you enjoyed the episode, and uh, we'll see everybody back here in about two weeks. Sounds like a plan. Have a good one, people. Stop talking about comic books or I'll kill you. I don't care if the Hulk could defeat the man of Yeah, and uh, we, we completely also, we managed to do a whole program uh, dedicated to Stan Lee without one saying Excelsior or True Believers. I thought I said True Believers. I guess I didn't. Uh, well, now I'm saying enough said. Hey. <laughs> uh.